So yeah. this is the toughest part of the podcast. Okay. Getting people's names right. All right, guys. So welcome back to the show. Um, I have Chrissy Barron with me today, and uh, I'm going to let her take over and do all the talking for the show today. But we're going to be covering a very interesting topic. I actually covered quite a few times already with a few other people that have made a journey out of a toxic work environment. And uh, I think this is a very important topic to talk about when going on an honest health journey to come to a complete resolution of a health issue or an aesthetic issue such as excess weight gain, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel it is, it is a big part that's not even really addressed that much in a lot of uh, in a lot of health journeys, sure, they tell people to like eat better and, you know, like uh, maybe move a little bit more, sleep a little bit, uh, sleep a little bit more, but they never uh, talk about, you know, like the importance of changing your environment, especially if it's a toxic work environment that's that, that you're required to do eight to 10 hours a day. And just from my experience of coaching people already for like 18 years, I found, uh, especially with fat loss clients, and there are many variables that go into this, of course, but this I feel is one of the main pillars is that if a person even accomplishes a fat loss journey or like a health journey on a specific program, but continues to stay in the same exact environment where a lot of these uh, triggers or pathologies have originated from, the chances of relapse are for sure not 100%, but they are quite high. And an extreme example would be like, you know, imagine a person finishes like a drug rehab center and then they go back to the exact neighborhood with the exact friends and the drug dealer at the corner and possibly no job at that point, which would lower their self-esteem even more and more inclined to kind of fall back into drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just wondering, uh, you kind of specialize in this area and it's always interesting to hear other people's perspectives on how they even got interested in this topic and moreover what they've learned along the way and what they've actually been able to do to kind of distance themselves for lack of a better word of like a cesspool of like a toxic work environment so uh yeah take over and, and maybe start with uh like a background of whatever whatever you like we'll go from there yeah okay awesome so um I'll give you kind of an athletic background and then also a corporate background so I was a collegiate cheerleader. Um, I competed as well as, um, cheered for the sports team. So there was kind of two different teams. And so I was also a gymnast before that. And then I actually in college started competing in CrossFit and I was competing at a pretty high level for 10 years. Um, and so I <laughs> understand, I understand internal stress versus external stress. And I think that that's something that um, we should touch on, which I'll jump to that right after my corporate background. So I've been in marketing for 13 years. I was the vice president of marketing for um, a very large organization. I ran a marketing agency outside of Australia and scaled it in the US. And I also scaled my own business that got acquired and then went on to freelance. So right now I pretty much act as a fractional CMO and I have a master's degree in psychology. So I and then I just nerd out on fitness things. Being an athlete myself, I was always trying to solve the problem of added stress because there is internal stress, right? Let's say relational stress or, um, you know, going into fight or flight because you didn't sleep enough, right? But then there's external stretches, stress, which is you get that email and you're in traffic. And so stress is like a pie chart. And if we are constantly overfilling our pie chart or overflowing, you are not going to be in a state where your body is 
in a state of homeostasis to even lose weight. So stress is probably the number one thing I'd say outside of alcohol, which we don't need to like get depth in depth there that is going to inhibit your fat loss. And so going back to kind of being stuck in a toxic environment and how that affects the body. So there's a great book and I know that everyone references this book, but it's the body keeps the score, right? And every time we're, we go through fight or flight, we release cortisol, cortisol gets stored in the body and we're never actually processing it, right? Cause we're just stuck in fight or flight and there's parasympathetic and sympathetic. And so parasympathetic is like completely relaxed on the couch. Okay. Your heart rate is is very, very low. You're completely relaxed. Then you have sympathetic, which is going into fight or flight. Bear is chasing you, except that we get stuck in the sympathetic because our narcissistic boss opens the door and you know that they're about to say something to you. You drive into the office and you know that just the day is so stressful. The fact that you are dreading going to work every day because the environment is unsettling, right? And the hard thing with that is that it's intangible. So I could say, um, you know, my boss used a tone with me and it really unsettled me. But unless you're in that situation, unless you're living that day to day, it's really hard to, I think, come from a place of understanding. So everyone's reaction to stress is going to be different, but it's, I think it was hard for me was validating my own story of, Hey, I'm in this really toxic workplace. My boss, it really felt like psychological warfare. And I'm, I'm definitely using that to that term loosely, definitely not comparing it to real warfare. I just want to make sure I'm understanding that I'm just using that as a comparison, but walking into the office every day, it felt like I was, my body was walking into battle. Like I was, I would cry, I would throw up. I mean, and I'm over here at a vice president role and you would think that I wouldn't have to deal with that, but it felt like I had to overcome this whole battle, just walking into the office because it was so uncertain of everyone's moods. And my belief is that it's not my job to manage someone else's mood. It has nothing to do with me being good at my job, but I was told that I needed to, in order to be good at my job, I had to manage the C-suite's moods. And I really don't agree with that by any means. Um, so that that's my kind of background and um, kind of the toxic work experience that I went through and how we ended up on this podcast together. Well, do you, do you notice like, uh, especially in American culture, I feel um, it's a fairly unsustainable culture for like a myriad of reasons. But do you feel like stress, like for the most part, especially in corporate environments has been kind of like normalized? I feel like um, it's just the person has been living this kind of lifestyle for so long. And it is for sure not conducive to human health. I mean, it's a combination of like low grade micro stresses on full blast followed by ma macro stresses, which is the worst possible combination. I mean, you have like a, a typical American that's getting up on five hours of sleep you know they probably mm -hmm. down like two or three cups of coffee get stuck in traffic that releases a lot more cortisol then they mm -hmm. like you said get to the office and they're ready in like a panic mode before the day even begins and then they have like one deadlift after or one um deadline after another and then 
they always have drama maybe with one coworker or like one manager that they don't see. Oh my gosh, yeah. And then they kind of like, you know, lunchtime begins, they go get more coffee, spikes cortisol even more, then highly inflammatory foods. Mm -hmm. Then they get back in another four hours of that circus. And then they get stuck in traffic on the way home. And then they get home and probably also, unfortunately, a lot of people then have an at-home stress life too, you know, maybe yeah. not with the partner they want to be in, like financial stressors, maybe even chronic health stressors, just like being very overweight or having gut issues, which also puts a lot more oh. of that stress load on the body. Yeah. And have you ever, um, you know, dealing with clients or chatting with people in that environment and you ask them, hey, are you stressed out? And they're like, no, I, I don't know what your experience So, is. Yeah. In American culture, I do think that we have a certain level of stress threshold that we are expected to have. I compare it a lot to Spain's culture. I've never been to Spain, okay? But I nerd out on their culture a lot. Just thinking of the siestas where they close down from 3 to 6 p.m. Um, and I, for the last year and a half, I worked with a um, company that was in the UK and in the US. And my UK colleague would go on vacation. I'm not kidding you. Every other week, she had so many paid holidays um, and then just like holidays for the UK and or paid vacation and holidays. And the difference was the level of guilt. I mean, when this woman went on vacation, she was unreachable. And there was a part of me that felt so envious of that because in American culture, I think that work and life are enmeshed in a very unhealthy way. And so, especially with how, based on the work relationship that you saw with your parents, my dad is a workaholic, works seven days a week. He is a very successful CFO for a very large company. Um, work is his life. And so being raised with that, I kind of assumed that that was the expectation of everything. And so I do think that our, our stress threshold is really high and to your point where no one talks about it. Right. So what we do is we compare losses to get up in the American corporate ladder. Right. So we walk in and it's like, Oh, how many hours of sleep did you have? Oh, I had three. Oh, I only slept two hours. Right. How late did you work last night? Man, I was up till 12. I was up till 1am. Um, Oh, I, I just want to achieve more. I just want to, you know, give me more. I'm going to keep doing this, but it's, it is a, it is a hamster wheel that you cannot get off of. And when you do get off of it, as I did, you are met with so much judgment. I mean, the comments that I've gotten on my TikToks talking about this is that I'm entitled, which again, I, I completely respect that I haven't told my full story because there's a level of privacy that I'm going to keep to my story and my situation and what happened. But the caveat of a toxic workplace was not anything of the fact of I deserved it, right? Which was the comments that I was getting, right? Well, you deserved it because you know what corporate America is. But my argument is, when are we ever going to change that? And how can work become sustainable? Because so... In Japanese culture, there's a word for, um, there's a word for people that work so hard that they die. Um, and it's actually a lot of business executives and it's like suicide by working really hard. Um, I don't remember the word, but we can look it up. And I think that that's something 
and oddly enough, that's respected. Well, he worked, he pushed himself so hard that he died. And I think that we mirror that here too. And I'm not saying this with the caveat that we shouldn't look at bills and we shouldn't, you know, be thinking about childcare and all of these things and meeting our basic needs. America's not set up very well to meet our basic needs on our own. We have to work for them. Mm. But the question is, okay, we're at this level and they're going to give me a 20K raise to be a manager. But being a manager, I'm going to work 20 hours more a week, 10 hours more a week. So therefore my stress is going to go up. I'm going to get less time with my family, but I'm going to get make 20K more. This is the gap that I'm talking about where people, where I wish that people sat back and said, what makes me happy? For, for most of my life, I never considered that. I did what would make me most successful and what would bring in the most money. So even someone asking me, what makes you happy? It was almost like a slap in the face because I thought, don't look down on me, but I don't, I don't care about happiness. I care about money and I care about success and I care about scaling the corporate ladder. And only until I worked in that workplace that just destroyed me, did I have my breaking point of coming to the realization that I couldn't sleep. I wasn't eating. So I was under eating. So then I was putting more stress on my body. Um, I was so inflamed because I was trying to sustain a level of high intensity exercise, which Mm -hmm. when you're already overstressed, (laughs) that's not good. Um, I made that mistake. And yeah, not not ideal, not ideal. Um, And it was just, I, I was stuck on that hamster wheel of, I have to stay here. I can't have a gap in my resume. What would people think about me? Oh my gosh, I just got this role as vice president for this huge company. And I can't just leave. People are going to have questions. But my breaking point was realizing that I actually don't care what this quote unquote people think of me. Like I'm going to do what's best for me in that scenario. And I completely blew up my life to change my stress threshold. My, my, it's crazy because I post, um, my screenshots of my sleep. Okay. So I'm sleeping in my van on the side of a road, right in the middle of nowhere. And I'm getting like 10 hours of sleep. How was that possible? Right. I mean, well, I just have to go to a toxic work environment. What do you mean? How is it? Possible? I don't have to go to toxic work environment. <laughs> I cut my stress. I hire my own clients. I literally love them and love working with them every day. I get to see new places, but in order to get there, I blew up my life. And I'm not, again, saying that without the understanding that a lot of people cannot make that choice. I am not married. I do not have kids. I have a dog. (laughs) She's unfortunately not my dependent, according to the IRS. Um, And so I was able to make that life choice. But in order to do that, I had to fight a lot of internal demons and core beliefs about myself and the path that I needed to create in life, which was like corporate success, CMO, Fortune 500. I mean, that was my plan from day one. And, you know, it, if we joke about whole 160, I live in a van and I travel the US and I cut back on my expenses like tenfold. And I am so incredibly grateful and happy every single day that I wake up. Yeah. And you brought up some like really interesting points. I also agree with you. Uh, I have had, I've had many clients that are like already extremely burdened with their current level of responsibility. 
and we get them to a good healthy state. And then all of a sudden, you know, four or five months later goes by and they get a promotion opportunity, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, dude, you can't even handle like 50 hours a week. Now you're going to do 70 yeah. hours a week. And they're like, yeah, it'll be fine. I'm going to have a bigger team and I'm going to get them to do all the work. And then uh, sure enough, like two years, three years later, they come back and they're just as overweight, if not more overweight. Plus, instead of one health issue, now they have like three health issues. So I see that. I see that all the time. And um, unfortunately, too, I think just when people are in that culture, uh, they just don't have another identity either. So they kind of feel stuck. And I feel also just mm -hmm. the reality is that one current position may actually the lower position may actually be super stressful, too, but not as well paying. You know, so they're like, well, I'm going to be stressed out and everything because mm -hmm. they're like A or B. It's like I'm staying on this path and I'm going to be stressed out or anything, but I'm, I might as well be getting paid more or something of that sort. Um, and also just another important point. It's like, oh, what people think of me. I'm like, dude, it doesn't matter what they think of you. I mean, just objectively speaking, probably nine out of 10 people in a corporate environment are not going to be doing mentally or physically well at all. So like. The, the worst thing you can possibly do is adapt like their belief system and do exactly like what they're doing or believing in moreover like what they think of you it's like what does it matter they're just they're not doing that well either either and on top of that as you know um the second you get fired or leave your work dude, a week later no one's going to even remember you or even call you or contact you like how many of your co-workers that you spent so many, hundreds if not thousands of hours with actually call you even to this day you know yeah yeah it's it's a good point right in that thought process of i'm already stressed out so why wouldn't i just take the money but i think that there is this there's this belief system in, in america that more money is selling my soul and we sell our soul a little bit to corporate right and so so many comments that i got i stitched this video of this girl talking about she left a job that she was making six hundred and twenty five thousand dollars to build her own company. Okay. I stitched it and I just said, look, I was the vice president of marketing. I left it. I didn't talk about my income or anything. Um, and people were so angry. They were like, I would sell my soul. I would work in a toxic workplace. I would do anything to make that amount of money. Right. Just clarifying. I was not making that amount of money. Um, and if I was, you know what, that choice would have been so much harder. And why, right? It's like, why would that choice have been so much harder? Because we have this belief that we have this belief, but also we're told that you make X, therefore you owe me X. And that is why I have been apprehensive to actually walk back into a W2 situation. I feel more comfortable as a contractor or a freelancer because I can control my hours and I have control over the amount that I'm committing to you. Therefore, you do not control me. You can't say that I have to go to X, Y, and Z meetings, like I will tell you what I'm comfortable with. Um, but there is this, this belief system. And I think that there's all this subliminal messaging, right? In America. And it's about, um, it's the land of creating your own dreams and entrepreneurship and all of these things. And, you know, there's a statistic about new businesses that fail and it's like 7% make it maybe lower than that, make it past the first year as being a successful business. And I believe that's based on L like um, S corp LLC stats that are opened and then closed. And it's so interesting because what if we talked about money in a different way? So my only other experience is living in Canada. I lived in Canada for about a year. I lived in Toronto. So what do we know about Toronto? Well, it's taxed a lot, right? It was like 40% taxes, but 
they had healthcare covered, they had like basic needs met. And I remember being there and I felt so angry. And I'm like, how dare the government take 40% of my money? But overall, people were so much happier and nicer. Again, this is my opinion, right? It's like, okay, why? I think if anyone's ever met a Canadian, they're like, wow, they're really happy, nice people. But the the conversation there in Canada was about what I was surrounded by a lot of people that were in school to be naturopath doctors that were Americans that went to Canada, right? Naturopath doctors are not a huge thing in the US. We are very Western medicine, right? They're they are very mixed between Eastern and Western medicine. And the conversation was about really enjoying what you're doing. Teachers in Canada starting salary is 80K, okay? Teacher salary in the US, I'm going to say even California's maybe 45 to 50. Um, firefighters in Canada, government workers in Canada make bank. Government workers are looked at as the most prestigious, I shouldn't say most, but very prestigious people. Then you come to California and you, someone says, I'm a firefighter. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, are you okay financially? <laughs> because you're you know, we know the struggle you had to do. You had to go volunteer and you had to have two jobs. And so many firefighters that I know in the U.S. have two jobs. And it's like, how, why? Why is that the case? Um, and so I, I went on a slight tangent there. But I do think that there is a level of our basic needs not being met. If we look at Sweden, right, They child care is free. So child care is such a crazy expensive um, cost in America. Why, right? It's like we are all stuck on this hamster wheel because we have to pay for things that then increase costs because of infl inflation, but we're not getting matched raises for inflation. Last year, anyone that got less than a 7% raise was not matching inflation. Therefore, we are just losing money doing the same job. And I don't really have anyone to talk to about because who am I going to do? Just go yell at the government? <laughs> it's not going to work. George Washington would have a different opinion. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> Different story though, obviously. Don't want to get too sidetracked here. Well, do you well, one thing with parents too, I find that is uh that is one of the roadblocks of what keeps people in um just unsustainable work environments. They go like, Well, I have yeah. kids, but just my one I guess my one observation there is as you know very well, like 80% of what kids learn from you, they just learn by observing you. You know, so if they see that you're, you know, killing yourself for work. And requiring like three to four different medical drugs just to be able to get up in the morning to even drive to work and just constantly tired and overweight they're going to see this as the way to to approach life you know and the problems in life and they're going to do the, probably the same exact thing and be a copy and paste version of exactly what their parents are and i guess my one question for the parents are if it's not working well for you and it's causing a lot of stress and misery in your life that's going to probably do the same exact uh exact thing for your kid just by setting the example. Um, yeah. So I just, I just find that, um, I find that one interesting, uh, one interesting thing. Also, another thing when questioning a lot of parents about why they stay in these unsustainable work environments, oftentimes it, they, I find they use their kids as a scapegoat because they're just too afraid to not leave that environment to begin with. Mm. Meaning if they didn't have any kids anyways, they wouldn't still pursue like their dreams, you know, presuming they're even crystal clear about their core values, which pretty much 98% of people Ooh. are not at all. And then obviously, if you're not 
clear about your core values, of course, your chances of getting into the wrong relationships, wrong jobs are going to be like monumentously higher, probably close to like 100%. And then the only thing you could really do, I find, is just for maladaptive behavior to deal all that, to deal with that story gap, you know? Um, yeah. And so what I didn't mention is the marketing agency that I scaled in the U.S. that was originating from Australia. It was the second large, largest marketing agency for gym owners. So I was marketing to everyday humans all the time. And our largest target market was parents. And the question is why, right? Well, okay, of course, there's a little bit more disposable income when you're going a little bit um, older, but also we know that, you know, we talk about that stubborn fat loss, right? That stubborn um, mid, um, like midweight that you can't get rid of, right? And so obviously it's going to be nutrition, it's going to be exercise, but the re but the huge thing is, well, what's your stress and how much are you sleeping? Right. And the sleep deprivation as a parent is insane. Um, I can't even imagine my best friend has three kids and I mean, she's just a superwoman. And so I do think that it's really interesting that you talked about people not understanding their own like core values or they're even understanding like what they really want. Right. And I refer to it in marketing as your hero goal, right? When I go into a company and I'm auditing them, I say, what's our hero goal? Is it revenue? Is it um, profit margin? Is it returning customers? And there's a lot of business owners that don't know that answer. And the thing is that we have to have a hero goal and then it's an umbrella and we scaled on from that. Right. So in the fat loss realm, it could be that uh, I want to lose weight. And then my secondary goal is that I want to be more for my kids. And my, you know, my third goal is that I want to live longer. Right. And I talk to my dad a lot about this. He's 68. And I say, you know, at some point I want to make sure that you're going to be able to get up off the couch by yourself. And this is why we're training now for that later in life, because I know that he would not be do well with any kind of dependency or needing that help or care. Um, and so, you know, everyone, I think figuring out what your hero goal is, regardless if it's business, regardless if you're an employee, regardless if you're trying to lose weight, it's like, what is your goal? But what is your why behind that goal? Because that has to be the thing that wakes you up in the morning and makes you put your shoes on and makes you start that run or wakes you up in the morning and makes you start doing that meditation or reading that book or whatever it is. So the why behind it has to be so much more powerful. Yeah. Do you do you find it challenging to to get a person to identify accurately with their honest why? You know, past like the myriad of layers of social programming that has already happened by the time they even come see you. Yeah. So there's this game, and I learned it in my master's program, and it's like, but why? And you do that seven times to get to the core answer. So if you said, I want to scale this podcast so that people can hear this story, I'd say, okay, but why? And then you'd keep going. And it's like, but why? But why? And it's seven times to get to that real answer. And so I don't know if people are aware of their original why. Kind of probing a little bit helps to get them to understand, right? You know, I also think that a lot of people's whys can be externally motivated, right? I want to look good so people perceive me differently. And their 
was so many years of my life that I cared what I looked like externally, but in a way where the way that I held myself, the way that I spoke, the way that I dressed, it was, I was like so built up to just be this fake person that lived on Instagram, right? Not in real life. And I cared so much about how people thought about me, but it directed my entire life. Right. And so it's social programming, which is what you said. So if I was stepping back from that social programming and what I do now, which is that I show the ugly side of my life. And for so many people out there, they don't showcase the ugly side of their life. Right. If we think about all these mom influencers and like they cut their kids perfect like meals in their square seek sandwiches, and you're like, I'm a horrible mom because I can't do that. Right. And then you look at these women and they're flying all over the world and they're like doing all these press conferences and they're also successful in their life and they're also fit. And it's like, well, I'm not like that. So why am I failing? And the reality is I know everyone talks about don't compare yourself to others, but the reality of actually trying to do that is so incredibly hard. And one of the things that I did to do that was I went on a social media hiatus. I deleted Instagram. I didn't have TikTok at the time. I mean, Facebook is like my grandparents. So it was like no one really. Um, and I just rebuilt myself into the person that I wanted to be versus comparing myself to everyone else that was on the internet looking amazing, right? Six pack abs, but they say they eat pizza and, you know, like the rich fronings of the world, they eat a tub of peanut butter. And it's like, okay, cool. But you're not, we're not rich froning. Okay. So yeah, I think the social comparison can be really hard. Hi everyone. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I'm curious, have you ever been confused by the labels in the grocery store? In Yevgeny's book, he demystifies the difference between caged, cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised meats. He also covers how to avoid GMOs, source high-quality water, fish, supplements, and other related topics. It's a beautifully illustrated, non-technical read that comes with a comprehensive video series and other extended learning materials. Jump on Amazon and check out the book titled Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Evgeny Trefkin. Now let's dive back into the podcast. Yeah, I mean, you've probably been spent so much time around high achievers throughout your life. I mean, have you ever, uh, sure, they all look great online or during their press conferences or whatever, but have you ever like met like a super high achiever that's working like 70, 80 hour weeks and actually doing well behind the scenes? I, I personally maybe yeah. met like one that I could honestly say like my whole life, maybe, but then that's about it because behind the scenes, it's like multiple divorces, kids hate them. Mm -hmm. They have mm -hmm. like various health problems. Um, even if they're not overweight, they still have like various health problems, like super high blood pressure, or they're taking like max anti-anxiety meds or antidepressants. Or they're taking bradzodone to sleep every night. Like yeah. that's not healthy. That's Ambient, that's not healthy, right? Yeah. You have to literally go under to go to sleep every night. Like that can't be good. Um, the answer is no. So right out of college, I wanted to be, my goal all through college was to be a lawyer. So I majored in um, business marketing with an emphasis, sorry, business administration with an emphasis in business law and marketing. And I took my LSAT while I was in school still. And I got a good enough score to get into like mid-tier law schools. And 
I went and spoke to like 20 lawyers. I would just call them. I'd walk into the offices and every single one of them, every single one of them told me, don't do it. This is the most miserable job. You will work for your whole life. And I didn't go. I didn't go to law school. And I I just went into the workforce, which obviously people aren't going to say, don't go into the workforce, right? But I think that's an example of, you know, lawyers for in America are, are looked at very prestigiously, right? Lawyers normally are on the political track, right? Majority of our um, political parties were lawyers or judges. And so we go, okay, you're a lawyer, so you're really successful. But I think figuring out what our individual umbrella of success means is the most important. So I had to change my belief of what success was because I used to think success was the corner office with the window and the salary in the nice car in the multiple homes. And see, none of that has to do with intrinsic value. All of that is external. And so when I got that, when I got to that corner office, when I got to that salary, when I got to the title and I realized that I was still so unhappy it was like, wait, 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 what? No, this isn't supposed to happen because I worked so hard to get here. So I'm not, a, I'm not supposed to be unhappy. I'm not supposed to have to suck it up. And what I did for the last two years was change my perception of the level of success. And I'm really conscious when I talk to people and I say, you're successful. I try to actually change that into an adjective. Like, wow, you seem really happy. You seem like you bright, you light up when you're talking about what you're doing. You seem like you really love the products that you're selling. And I think this, this definition of success is so different, right? Because I've worked with businesses that grew zero to 11 million in a year. Okay. That's successful. But then I've worked with businesses that went 250 million to 400 million in a year. Well, that's successful. What's the difference and what's the scalability and what's the profit margin. And there's so many things that you can question on that. And so I think that changing every changing our own belief of what the word success or successful is will be the most helpful in really trying to have that be your true north right it's like you and i may have different um definitions of success but i know what i hold as successful which is that i live a life every day where i feel grateful to be alive and there i definitely have felt the want or the need to not be here anymore. And that's such a heavy feeling. And so I wake up every day with such a sense of gratitude because I feel like I can control what I want to do in that day, what I get to do in that day, right? If I don't have client meetings and I don't have work, I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to do whatever I want because no one tells me what to do. Um, I'm going to go work out. And so my level of my definition of success changed over the years and the question is, right, was it that toxic work environment? You know, I think that being in that toxic work environment sped up the inevitable, which was that I was on a path to burnout regardless. I mean, I was a college athlete. I took 19 units a semester and I worked three jobs. I don't know how I'm alive, but I am. <laughs> and so I was already going to burn out at some point. And so I think... I just hit the inevitable faster. And when I hit that peak, I mean, I fell so low, like so low. You know, I, I, I quit my dream job. I had a mortgage that I was like, how the hell did I get in this? I 
everyone was asking me what happened, right? Because my perception of success was so high. I wasn't letting anyone see behind the scenes of what was really happening. You know, I had to stop competing in CrossFit because all of the years of my four to five hour training sessions caught up to me Mm -hmm. and my life just wasn't sustainable. And so I kind of lost everything all at once. And I, I look at it like kind of a rebirth of my belief in myself and who I am. Yeah. And a few, a few things to kind of go off of exactly what you said is true. Like everyone has, you know, different goals at the end of the day, you know, some people want to be a really good programmer. Some people really want to be a good like life coach or whatever. But I feel like at the end of the day, like mental and physical health is always number one, no matter what your goal is. Cause like, how are you going to, how are you going to achieve something? Uh, if you're, if you have like major depression, you know, chronic depression, yeah. like how are you going to do something if you have like chronic low back pain or cancer, you know, uh, 50% of Americans develop cancer now within their lifetime and one quarter of them die from it, but people still play the lottery thinking they're going to win, but then you tell them they're going to have a high chance of getting cancer if they keep, you know, suppressing their immune system with super long hours of work, plus like terrible mm. diets and not enough, not enough of using movement as medicine. Um, and they're like, oh, that's not going to be me. I'm like, well, it's 50% chance. It's, it's pretty high. So I would say like, no matter what your goal is, your physical and mental health always has to be number one. And I, yeah. I would say, if you want to have a higher chance of just living a sustainable and kind of quote unquote, happy life, what happy means is so flexible. Uh, you have to use that as a base mark. Am I like mentally or physically? Well, if I am, then I can do more. If I'm not, then I have to take a step back and attend to where those deficiencies are to bring up my mental and physical health and use that kind of like as a base or a springboard for, for other activities. But I feel the American way, it's kind of like, just ignore the pain teacher. Oh, you have this, just numb it out with all these medical drugs or, you know, even socially acceptable activities like, Oh, you know, you hate your life drinking, drinking, or even, um, just disappear and work, work even more crazy hours that a lot of people mm. do that as well. Uh, you know, when they don't like their life, at least it kind of distance or dissociates from that message yeah. and they can just focus on more of their team at work and their objectives and have some kind of hint of, hint of meaning, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still all symptom management, you know, and managing symptoms mm-hmm. only yields more symptoms over time. That's it. Yeah. That's the yeah. only way that strategy works and, and it doesn't work any other way. Um, and I also, I also feel you hinted on something like very important for human health and that's having autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. don't know if, um, if you can kind of speak on how important that is in the overall health equation, simply because like nature is such a novelty generator. There are no even two droplets of water that are the same more over people. And I find with, especially with the bigger the company, the more you have to mold around the core values of the company. And thus, the more you lose yourself, the more masks you have to wear when you show up at work every day. So you talked about mental health, mental and physical health should be number one, right? I totally agree with you. But the problem is that if I went and got a job in corporate America, as you know, VP of marketing, and I went to my boss and I said, mentally, I'm feeling really depressed. It would not be the same response as I said, Hey boss, I broke my leg. Right. Same thing as if you take a mental health day, which I think most, um, most insurances give you mental health days. I think there's like two a year, three a year, which also is is embarrassing. Not enough. Um, (laughs) 
That barely gives you enough time to catch up on breakdown, your sleep. Okay. <laughs> we'll weekend, you know. You can barely do a grocery store run in that kind of time. Yeah. So, I, so I think that it's hard because again, we get back on this hamster wheel and we say, okay, so I'm gonna live my truth. I'm gonna say mental and physical health are number one. So I'm gonna go to my boss and I'm gonna speak up. And then the conversation is, oh, you've really been underperforming. So we're going to put you on a pip. Okay. Well, I've been underperforming because I am dealing with depression and anxiety. They're like, well, we're going to let you go because you've been underperforming. Right? So the reality is that speaking about your mental health or even really speaking about your mental health is not, it's not a safe environment because the the fear of them using it against you is Mm -hmm. so there. When we talk about physical health, there are certain aspects of physical health that we're allowed to get, uh, let's say, external support from. If I have a broken arm, if I get into a car accident, right? Because there's a certain level where you're just going to look like a dick if you don't respond the right way, right? Mm-hmm. If I break my arm and you tell me come into work and don't go to the hospital, I mean, outside of that being illegal, you look bad. But if I say oh, my blood pressure is really high, or my knee's killing me, but why is your knee killing you? Well, you put on 40 pounds and your joints can't handle that, right? There's certain things that are just not respected as an, um, I don't, I don't like the word excuse, but as an example of why maybe you're not doing your hundred percent best at work. And so it's hard to say, you know, yes, I agree. Mental and physical health should be number one. But I don't think that corporate America is going to get on get on the path of supporting that. But the more health benefits we bring out, so like the, the last year and a half, I worked on a menopause health benefit that the goal was for different corporations to pick up this menopause digital health benefit so that menopausal women had more support in the workplace. So let's say it was the same respect as using normal health insurance, right? Um, for just physical well-being, right? So I'm hoping that the path that we're going on is more so that employers are going to support us through insurance or health programs. And then that then we can get more leeway that way. So maybe we push for two to three mental health days to seven, right? Um, and then going back to the word autonomous. So the feeling of being in control of my own life and control can be such a, can be a drug, right? (laughs) Because we, we definitely have control people that are too much in control, but being able to be fully autonomous has given me such a sense of freedom and it has given me the space to fill in parts of myself that I never knew I wanted to like, just go to left brain, right brain, brain people, right. Brain is creative, right? I don't know if I'm right on that, but I think left is very mathematical. Right is creative. If I'm wrong on that, I apologize. Um, and so I've been left brain my whole life. So it was not, it was like, I can't draw, can't color. I can't do that, but you know, I can mess up an Excel spreadsheet. Um, But so now I have this, I have this freedom because I'm my own boss. I'm not going to say I can't do anything. It's like, okay, well, if you enjoy coloring, go color. If you enjoy drawing, go draw. If you enjoy being in nature, go be in nature because being that I am my own boss and I am autonomous with my schedule and how I execute things, I also trust that I'm going to get the job done because I trust myself. Um, 
but also I have the freedom to get the job done in the way that I want to. Mm-hmm. Right. And the autonomy comes with this sense of trusting yourself, which I think a lot of people do not trust themselves. Um, for so many years, I looked for external validation, right? Because I didn't trust myself that how I felt about myself was real. So, you know, I'm looking for those Instagram likes and those Instagram comments and those, um, you know, the dating apps, right? It's all validation. It's all external validation. The reality is it's because I didn't like myself. So I was looking for that in other people. And so when I learned how to trust myself, which was not an easy process, I, it helped me have the freedom to be autonomous, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An, a, important topic there, uh, because I do hear a lot of people say, oh, I am doing what I love. And I would say, you know, uh, most of the time that's not true, but even if it is true, um, that's, that's unfortunately not enough. You also have to find an environment that allows you to express that passion in your own individual creative mm-hmm. way. So if like you're an individual and you like working on airplanes, but your company's working on like dishwashers, you know, yes, you're doing engineering, but it's a completely wrong vehicle of expression, you know? Uh, and then there's also the little intricate details of like, um, you know, if you like your boss to have nonviolent forms of communication, but instead they're like some old 70 year old guy that only knows how to yell at people to get problems solved, you know, then there's a disconnect there. And it's so important to get those things right, because inevitably you're spending more time, at least in America, you're spending more time working with the people at work than you do with your actual loved ones at home. So you can't, uh, you can't imagine, you can't expect like, you know, not enjoying eight to 10 hours of your day. And basically you're kind of thinking about not enjoying it on the way to work. You also think about it at work. And then on the way back from work, you kind of summarize how much you hated your day and then expect mm-hmm. to also be fully present with your actual loved ones at home, et cetera, et cetera. And I do feel like America, uh, going back a little bit more on what you said, like, um, uh, American consumerism has done an amazing job at getting uh, Americans to presume what's not important is most important. And what's most important is actually not important at all. And sure, like a lot of people would say, oh yeah, like love for family and spending time with your family is important. Mental health is important, uh, whatever, etc." I'm like, okay, then why aren't you doing it? You know, mm-hmm. and it only works if you do it. <laughs> this, if you're not like an academia and just presenting this stuff, you know what I mean? You only get benefit from actually doing it. And like, no one does it. Almost nobody does it because I don't know if you heard the statistics, uh, like nine out of 10 American adults right now are metabolically sick. Wow. And, uh, and the general stats to be metabolically healthy is not like Olympic level or what you have to do for collegiate athletics. I mean, it's yeah. like, is, your, is your heart beating? Yeah. You are, okay, you're metabolically healthy and 90% of people can't even get to that level. So uh, it's not like me projecting, it's just objectively speaking, just the system uh, and the approach we're doing right now may somehow hold up the GDP maybe for now, but it's like at the expense of getting basically uh, like a whole entire population of extremely medically medically drugged out citizens that are just very miserable. And it's like, okay, cool. You have a house and two cars and now you're just super miserable and super sick all the time. I guess, congratulations. Is that victory or? So you bringing up consumerism is so important, right? And so I think that it goes back to us being on this on this hamster wheel, right? Because look, I'm in marketing. So I know the beautiful aspects of manipulating 
I'm marketing is manipulating, right? So, so I'm going to tell you that you cannot live without this bottle of Vaseline. You cannot live without it. Everyone has it. All of your friends have it. Oh my gosh. You don't have it. You don't have a Stanley cup. That's so embarrassing. You won't spend $65 on a cup. No, of course I'm not going to do that stupid. Um, but that is not a shout out. Okay. But in America, we push that. We push that what you dress, how much you like what you wear, how you have right? the cool kids, right? It's what we've blown up from user-generated content is huge because now someone that I look up to has all of these items. So now I have to have all of these items, right? And then we get into this, this rat race or this hamster wheel where we are overspending and the system is meant to keep us down, to oppress us, right? So we do this marketing to increase consumerism, to buy things that you cannot afford, to you know be house poor or car poor, to then work to sell your soul, to continue to do that, and to impress people that don't matter. And you know, yeah, one really of the things Chris, that I Chrissy, think- Sorry for yeah. interrupting you. It's not that they don't matter. It's just at the end of the day, they really just don't care about you anyways. So why mm. even focus on impressing, impressing them in any way? And it's not like they're bad people. It's just like, dude, they got their own life and their own problems. The second you fade away, like they're not going to remember you a week later. So don't point on killing yourself, you know, yes. to impress to impress these people. Like the people that are quote unquote um, influencers, right? The really high level influencers. Think of the Kardashians. Why are we supporting them? Why are we buying their products? Like sixty five dollars for a pair. Like that's really expensive, right? Like who are we impressing by using these name brands and? One of the things that I did before I quit my job to know that I was going to quit my job and leave corporate America was I went through my finances with a fine tooth comb. I cut back on everything that I didn't need to. I am incredibly responsible with finances. And what I've found is that most people don't understand finance one-on-one. And that makes me so incredibly sad. I mean, I've met people that don't understand that they're paying interest on a credit card monthly versus mm -hmm. annually. And, you know, people that are keeping money in savings and your savings is 0.001%, but you're losing 22% on your credit card every month that you're not paying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of my passion is helping people understand just finance 101. And because I think that the system is meant to keep you down. If we overspend, we will always have to work and then we will never get out of that. And one of the things I did was I cut back on everything. One of my goals for... Um, 2024 is actually to not buy anything, any new clothes. Um, also I love thrifting, so it's not that hard, <laughs> but like my goal is not to buy any new clothes, um, because I have too many. And also I live in a van, there's no storage. So it helps to have that goal. Well, I found actually with, with, I, I grew up for the first 10 years of my life with my grandmother off grid in Ukraine. So I had like a way different perspective of life to always reflect on when coming to a materialistically abundant society of America um, and always kind of had that as a anchor, you know, to kind of, uh, and she was actually like extremely happy. Uh, she lived that way her whole entire life and lived to uh, 87 without even going to the hospital a single time, you know, and just maintained that ranch on her own. Um, and I found like personally, and I don't know if you find this to be the same way, like past your biological needs, all materialism does is just provide like a sugar high at best. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I never see it provide like any lasting um, 
enhancement of quality to a person's life or any lasting happiness like whatsoever. Of course, you need like food, you know, a safe place to live for sure. Probably like maybe health insurance as well. But yeah. I mean, like past that, it's really just like, yeah, you can keep buying stuff and it'll give you sugar mm -hmm. highs for sure. And then, you know, you buy like a nice car and you spend 40K on it. And then like three months later, it's just another car that takes you from A to B. But the 40K is gone, you know? You know, it's thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the base is food, water, shelter. And then it goes, you know, okay, love and support. And then it goes up there to materialistic things. And most people are going the opposite way. We're going top down on that, right? I'm buying a car and I'm buying a house that I cannot afford, which I know people in LA are living this. I, they're in so much debt. And then debt becomes a snowball effect. There's no way you can get out of it. And even thinking about student loans, I get so passionate about student loans. And I was lucky enough to not need to get student loans. And I, but student loans, it's like at 18, they're going to give me a $200,000 loan, but they can't front me 50K to buy a house. Like that doesn't make, that logically doesn't make sense. They don't teach you what happens. They don't teach you about the interest rates. Like these people are paying student loans for the rest of their life. 500 to $1,000 a month. That is incredible. That's such a large chunk of your income. That's really hard to do anything off of. And mm -hmm. it's just a system that we just accept, right? Because it's so big. I don't really know how to change it. Right. I mean, I don't have the answer. I don't know if a free education is the answer. I don't know what the answer is, but I do think that educating people. So they have a conscious choice versus an unconscious choice would be the first step. Yeah. And uh, regarding finances, I think that should be an important part of uh, a health journey as well. Just teaching people, they don't need to be a wizard investor or whatever, just the ba 101 basics of finance. But the average American does spend around um, eight to $16,000 a year on non-essential expenses, like no problem. Mm -hmm. Many people spend way more than that. And I don't know if you've ever run into this. I run into this like all the time. You tell people like, Hey, you know, buy like legitimate organic food. They're like, ah, oh, it's too expensive. But like, um, uh, you know, a 2000 calorie, uh, organic 2000 calorie a day organic diet costs about like 5,000 a year, you know? And yeah. they're like, oh, that's too expensive. But I'm like, well, how about this eight to $16,000 a year here? You're spending on eating out like alcohol, weekend trips, mm -hmm. et cetera, like totally under the radar too. Like even unconsciously they do this and it's totally okay. Um, and they're like, oh, it's too expensive. Uh, obviously there's a core values disconnect and they're not living like in alignment with a healthy mm -hmm. belief system. But I don't know if you've experienced this in your practice when trying to get people to change out of a state of ambivalence. Yes. I've someone much smarter than me says this, but you can only change the conscious. You can only change the unconscious when it becomes conscious, right? So if you are not conscious of your actions, if you're not conscious of your spending, if you're not conscious of your eating and your drinking, how are you going to change it? Right. And so the same thing is, you know, downloading uh, a macro tracking app or a calorie tracking app. The same thing is like, why would you do that and not track your finances? Mm -hmm. If you are, if you are scared of opening your credit card statement to look at your credit card statement, you know, I have empathy for you, but the first step is looking, you know, and then dissecting and understanding how you can do better. Right. I have done challenges where I've written down everything I've spent that month, you know, in a notebook. So every single time I spend money, I write it down so I can be conscious, right? Why does it feel like cash goes so much faster than a credit card 
Well, because the credit cards, it's almost intangible money. So we're not conscious of it, right? And that's why the envelope methods work so well, which is you take the cash out and you put them in the envelope and you have 400 for groceries and for, and you don't overspend. And it honestly forces you to be, to think critically. Okay. So what does it do? It makes you have to pre-plan. So now you have to pre-plan your meals. And the biggest thing too, when you're working with clients and nutrition is saying, Hey, um, I want you to pre-plan your week out for your macros. Right. And that thought is so, so foreign to them, but of course I don't want you to like, I'm not telling someone not to eat a cookie, but just eat a cookie and add it in, but just know you're going to have less fat later in the day. So just plan for that. Um, and so just this thought of becoming conscious of the actions that you may be uh, unconscious of. Well, regarding that topic, it's such an important topic for change. And I got this line from, uh, from Stefan Walensky and he's like, oh, you know, the healing process begins when we start being honest about the lives, uh, lies we tell ourselves. And um, just going back for your example, like what are some lies you told your, yourself over your corporate career that kept you in that unsustainable path? And how did oh, you that's... finally uncover, uh, how did these lies eventually go like, hey, you know, something's not adding up. I need to look up, I need to look into this story in a little bit more depth here. That's such a good question. The lies that I told myself to make my corporate life sustainable was that this was what I had to do to get to the top. So I had to be berated every day. I had to be yelled at and screamed at and cussed at because everyone went through that. And that I, this was kind of like, I'm going to say the quote unquote boot camp of corporate America. You have to put up with this. And that, you know, you can't complain and you can't talk about it because people have it worse. And to a point where I lost so much of my self-confidence that I even told myself that I deserved it. I deserved being talking, talked to like this. I deserved the fight or flight that I went into every single day because I wasn't good enough. And the way that I got out of that was a lot of journaling a lot of therapy, which I know therapy is a privilege because it's very costly. Um, I read every mental health book that I could, right? I, in a mix on the educational ones versus kind of like self-help aspect, because I do, I like both of them. Um, and I actually looked into a different form of therapy. So being that I'm type A, I can understand how I'm feeling and I can communicate it very, very easily. I don't know how to feel it. If you said, I could, I could say I'm angry and you say, okay, we'll feel that. It's like, I don't know. I'm just telling you I'm angry. I don't, I don't really know how to feel it. It's like, it's, there's a, there's a discrepancy between my head and my body because logically I can tell you everything that I'm feeling, why I'm feeling it and what happened. But if you told me to process it, it's like, well, that's, I don't know what you're even telling me. And so I started looking into somatic therapy, which is about breathing and processing and honestly, just like bringing your, um, your breath into your belly, like belly breathing versus just nostril breathing. And that helped me so much just bring my heart rate down. I mean, my HRV for 10 years was horrible. Whoop would tell me on a daily basis, I shouldn't work out to the point where I just stopped wearing it. Cause I got mad at it. Whoops, like, just don't get up out of bed today, please. Whoop, yeah, Whoop was like, don't, getting up. Yeah. don't do anything. And I'm like, Whoop, I have a life to live. What do you mean? I can't be in red every single day. Yeah, and I feel, uh, well, regard, regarding psycho psychology, um, 
you know, I'm a big psychology fan. That's what I got actually my degree in from the University of California, Irvine, way back when. Um, I feel like over the years, though, way back in the day, psychology started with the honest pursuit of just finding out who you were mm -hmm. and being true to that. But I feel psychology, and I'm going to use, I know there's a field called industrial psychology, but I'm using that phrase in a different, different perspective here. I feel like psychology has become very industrialized recently. And what I mean by that is like, it's all about like, um, rarely has anything to do with who you are, but it's all about just getting you to mold into the matrix even more. It's like, oh, you mm. have anxiety. Okay, let's get rid of that anxiety. So you can work more hours and you can get a bigger paycheck and a bigger house. Oh, you have like depression, let's work on that mm -hmm. so you can get into better relationships and you can have more and more and more. And it's always like this more and more and more, but never really kind of changing the work environment or in general, the work environment is just a reflection of society, never changing society that's leading to all this pathology. So in my opinion, it's kind of like, okay, you have like a bunch of smart people that are like learning how to tinker and exist in a cesspool or like a swamp. But my suggestion is like, why not just like, get out of the swamp and the healing process just naturally so much easier. Why learn how to stay in this toxic goo and then learn how to take all these potions and do all these elaborate therapies when dude, just leave, <laughs> just leave. And then maybe get a little bit of coaching here and there. And all of a sudden, like the healing process is like monumentously faster, just like you left. I'm so like, would you imagine you doing, um, the amount of change you've done still continuing to work in that environment? No. Yeah. So I would, I would, my version of me now would not fit in at all. And I would not allow for the feeling in my body to be gaslit. And, um, you brought up a really good point. So we tend to fix the surface level issue, right? You're anxious. Here's a pill. This is not me shaming uh, medicine at all, right? Okay, I take anxiety medicine. It helps me so much. But we can't sleep. Here's a pill, right? So there's a surface level fix versus what the, pro the underlying problem is, right? And most people are not going to seek that underlying problem, the solution for the underlying problem, right? You cannot sleep because you are so overstressed out. You are probably under eating, meaning you're not eating a balanced macro diet, you may be overworking out and you're just not in a sustainable life. You're not living a sustainable life, but it's like, Hey, no, I don't have time for that. Make me go to sleep right now. And there is a period in my life where I was drinking NyQuil every night to go to sleep. That is insane. Right. And no part of me was like, Hey, I, the thought of even pausing and saying something's wrong with this, I didn't have time for that. It's like, shh, no, no, no. I got to go back to work. I got to go, I got to go achieve. I don't have time to pause. Things are wrong. That's fine. Give me something to fix it. I, I got to go. And um, I think what I've realized now is I just live such a slower life. Like my life is slower. I get to pause. I get to make choices. I get, you know, the feeling that everything is on fire. It's not how I live my life anymore. Yeah, I feel just also probably educating people on how the central nervous system has ideally evolved to function is huge. I got this from uh, Stefan Lepowski, the author of like, Why Zebras Don't uh, don't Get Ulcers. I was going to bring that book up. That's crazy. Why yeah. Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Okay, yeah. Well, 
old book for sure. Although it's been a long time since I read it, I think his theory was that stress caused ulcers, but it's been actually proven that H. pylori, a bacterial infection of the stomach, caused caused the uh, ulcer. And if that's not treated, then it leads to stomach cancer eventually. So that's kind of interesting. But I presume you know stress also lowers the immune system and makes those bacterial infections more likely too. So it's all kind of intertwined. All the systems kind of work together. But I think it's important to like realize, like, hey, you know, looking back at hunter gatherers, it's like you know, you went for a hunt, like hunting a mammoth, for example, in Ukraine, where I'm from. Yeah, it's probably stressful. You maybe lose, lost like one tribe's person or whatever. But then there's like long valleys of literally nothing going on. You know, you're mm -hmm. hanging out like in the wilderness 24 seven, you're drinking uh, nothing but spring water, eating wild game, wild fish. Basically like 95% of the hunter gatherers life was like what we do for like one week vacation in America, you know, but that's like mm -hmm. the majority of their life. And that's ideally how the central nervous system functions. It's kind of like peak stress, then literally nothing going on for a long time because then the system has enough time to recoup its resources and then another stressor. And like the ideal day would probably be like something like get up, like work out for like an hour or two, then do like maybe two or three hours of work and then that's it, you're done, you know? Something of that sort. And I yeah. just feel like without establishing that, you really are just on on damage control for your whole entire life. And you can do damage control strategies, some better than others for sure, and probably stay alive until like 70 or 80. But I just feel the quality of life will be lower. The aging process will be accelerated quite high. Your chances of cancer development and various other maladaptive behaviors will be quite high as well. Yeah, I think that we often live a life for other people, right? And so when you're saying, okay, we'll just, let's just pause and look at the why behind these things. No one has that time to pause. Um, one of the things that I didn't realize was I, th I thought that I would be so incredibly lonely living in a van with just my dog and traveling, traveling all around. And what I realized after almost four months is that I love it. I love being alone. I love myself. I don't actually like a lot of people and hey welcome to the club you know <laughs> and um i feel so i just feel so calm and collected and you know i think a lot of people would be scared of living the life that i live because i i completely let go of every external gratification source i mean minus social media which i use for marketing purposes and i love it like, I love it so much. And it's so peaceful to the point where I'm scared of potentially going back to like living a normal life one day, which, you know, I don't have to, but just normal fears that come up. I've also noticed just with friends and acquaintances, those that left the corporate work, even if situations where they tried to do their own thing, but they kind of failed and went back to the corporate work, they shortly left thereafter and then just stayed out. Mm -hmm. No one ever goes back again and it just stays there. I've never, I've never seen that happen. Once you have that taste of, of freedom, yes. it's kind of, even if it's a tough, tough freedom, it's like, it's, I, I don't see people letting it go. It's at the end of the day, just the soul wants to be free. You know, it doesn't want to be in front of this computer 10 hours a day being screamed by being uh, managed by probably a boss that's not doing mentally or physically well themselves either. And I feel that's one of the toughest things because it's kind of like, dude, a lot of the people you're going to be working with are not going to go through that, don't even want to go through that honest health journey. So in a sense, you're working with people that aren't doing that mentally or physically well, 
And I feel just that energy will impact your energy negatively, just being around that like eight to 10 hours a day as well, which acts as another obstacle to really optimizing your mental and physical health as a, as a person. Yes, very much so. I mean, I feel so grateful that I'm even in a position where I have freedom at all. Well, you touched on an important thing too, and that's, um, uh, and of course, it's not like how you, it's not like what you do, it's how you do it oftentimes, but people's, um, I guess, shame around being uh, selfish. And mm, I would say yeah. it's like, in my opinion, it would be great to hear what you have to say, but if you don't have your needs, if, first of all, if you're not clear about your needs, and then if you are clear and you don't have those needs met in like a relationship or a work environment, like it's already going to be an unsustainable process, just a matter of time. Uh before you start getting disgruntled, you know, towards your mm -hmm. coworkers or whatever, because your needs aren't being met. And then um, at the end of the day, let's say you want to be, you know, living in a van and free, but you know, that's your core value. But now you're doing this very complicated legal paperwork and your coworker is behind on their project. Now you have to do their work, which you don't even want to do anyway. Then you get mad at them. And then it creates this kind of workplace drama. You know what I'm getting at. You take yeah. So the shame of being um, the shame if we're selfish, right? What that leads to is essentially this belief of people pleasing, which is putting others above ourselves. But what I've found is that people pleasers, people pleasers are not trustworthy. Because if I ask you, would you like to do something? And you say yes, but I know you tend to say yes, and then you don't mean it, and then you lead to resentment, then you're not a trustworthy person, right? I would actually rather trust the person that's a little bit more brutal in their yes or no's, right? They're going to tell you the honest truth because you know that they mean it. And so I read this thing once and it said, um, would you rather have a moment of discomfort or would you rather build up resentment? And that is the difference between people pleasing, right? Let's say I really didn't want to do something, but I said yes anyways, because I felt guilty. So then I'm just putting more, more pebbles in the bucket of resentment until I snap. And then that's just a cycle we go into every single day versus the moment of discomfort of sitting there and saying, actually, I, I don't really feel like doing that. And not you, you have to speak your truth regardless of what the other person's reaction will be, which I know is very scary. And my therapist used to tell me that a conversation is a game of ping pong. You cannot control both sides. You cannot say your side, run over and catch the ball. You just have to be, you just have to trust that what you're going to say is how you feel and whatever they say is going to be on them. But you can't play a game of ping pong by yourself. I mean, unless the table's folded in half, but that's not part, that's not the, that's not my point of me. I was just going to say, I'm like, you can't, <laughs> you could either, unless be it's a Gump, I know it could be a draw or yeah. you lose at that point. You'll never, you'll never beat the table, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a really good book that helped me over the years called like nonviolent forms of communication. Oh, I, uh, I think Rosen, I forgot the name of it, really popular author Rosenberg, but uh, he describes like various, uh, various strategies that a person can use in a typical workplace environment to make sure your needs are met without, uh, you know, uh, coming off as too aggressive or, or ignoring other people's needs, et cetera, et cetera. I'd say just avoid those environments altogether. But if you're stuck in it, that's a great book, uh, mm -hmm. great book and stuff of that sort. So I know you have I'll to, definitely look at that book. Yeah, I, I know you have to go pretty soon. Um, 
are there any other topics you would like to uh, talk about or cover at all? Let me look at my my very messy notes here. Um, you know, I think the main thing that I want to get across and the point of, you know, when I posted those TikToks that that's how we were introduced is I want people to feel confident enough to live their truth. And when I tell people that, well, a lot, it goes back to the thing of, do you even know what your truth is or your, your North star, or your hero goal? And if you don't, that's okay. But the people that live their truth are brave, right? It was very brave of me to quit and leave corporate America and go against every single ounce of my being that was screaming at me to go be successful in corporate America and to leave that and to live in a van and to manage my expenses and to like rarely ever eat out. And like, I'm not really a big drinker. Like I drink maybe once a quarter and, you know, it's just like, I go against the grain in so many ways. And I used to feel shame for that. And now I am so proud and I feel so grateful. I think because I really stepped into my truth and I feel so much more comfortable in who I am every day. And I just wish and hope that everyone else can feel that way one day too. Yeah. And honestly, I'm happy that you don't feel uh, ashamed about it anymore. I don't even know why you felt shame to begin with. It's like, oh, let me be like everyone else that's like full of mental and physical pathology because that's an accomplishment. It's like, to me, <laughs> that seems kind of really silly. You know, it's like, let's try this other path. It may not work also, but hey, this path that everyone's doing is for sure not working. You know, So might as well, yeah. might as well just try something, try something new. Uh, but you know, thank you for thank you for doing this call. It would be cool maybe to interview you at a future date about how to make um, the van life happen, or maybe how to establish that. financial independence too. I can kind of share some things uh, that I've done as well. Uh, that way, you don't feel like you have to do that. And even if you do stay there, it's a way different feeling from just doing it and not having to versus just having to because you definitely need the money. So um, I would love both of those. I think financial independence would be first. Um, because I do think that's a step in a lot of the comments I get on TikTok is you expect me just to quit my job. I have bills and it's like, no, I, to I totally get that. Um, but you know, going back to the question of which bills actually align with your life and which can you live without? Yeah. Well, that that's a that's a level of ambivalence that requires like a whole two hour episode i know i know get across to people with honesty but very important topic nonetheless so yeah we'll hopefully do another one sometime in the future um i appreciate the content you're putting out and then kind of doing this show as well and um yeah thank you thank you for being a guest i can't wait to rewatch this and i appreciate it and enjoyed this conversation so much cool yeah, and thanks everyone have a good one Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you've ever had trouble losing weight, or you've lost weight, but still didn't have the ideal body or health you're aiming for, please feel free to reach out anytime and book an assessment. Eugene will work with you to cover your goals in detail, see what's holding you back, and go from there. In the meantime, feel free to check out the countless testimonials on Eugene's website in the link below. In the testimonial section you'll notice everyone has various backgrounds, are of all different ages, and all have had different challenges in their life, but they all have one thing in common, they were all able to find their health and achieve their ideal body. You're also welcome to add yourself to the Facebook group in the link below.
There you'll have access to the live videos that Eugene does weekly on Sundays and other helpful content. Thank you again for tuning in.